Okay, I got the easy part out of the way of getting up here without falling. I know some of you have expressed uh, a concern that I was going to eat it with my crutches, um, but I made it, and so now comes the hard part of expositing God's Word. But what a joy to be able uh, to be back on a Sunday with you all and to be able to proclaim uh, the Word of God. Um, this past week, I was reminded by my... Um, the physical therapist that I'm seeing, um, because I, I did start walking, I started walking without crutches, but he said, you know what, Dom, you're going to have to make sure that you um, keep bending your knee. And I said, well, you know, I'm here to, for my Achilles. I said, well, what's wrong with my knee? He said, well, because you're in this boot and you're not using your leg very much, uh, what often happens is you start having trouble with your knee. And so he said, uh, we, what we don't want is we don't want those muscles and those joints to begin to atrophy. Because if they do, you're going to start experiencing all kinds of complications, um, loss of range of motion, and worse, you're going to have lots of pain. So I said, okay, well, what do I have to do? He said, well, you got to get used to bending your knee. And that was just very appropriate as I've been studying Philippians chapter 2 this week, this whole idea of bending our knee to Christ. Paul, in Philippians 2 He's been calling the Philippian church, and he's been calling us to a specific kind of attitude. He's been calling us to this attitude because this is what produces unity in the church. It is when we, like Christ, bow down low in humble submission. Jesus, he humbled himself to the Father's will. He humbled himself out of love for others and the correlation here is, as Christians, if we don't humbly submit, if we are not bowing low to the Lordship of Christ, and if we're not doing that daily, regularly exercising humility in our lives, then we also experience imbalances and we experience pain. So it's helpful for me just to put that in the context of my own physical body. We can't grow cold as a church. We can't become stiff because if we do, then we become useless when it comes to kingdom advancement. So in order to motivate us toward greater unity and more Christ-minded humility, what Paul is going to do for us today with just one sentence, he's going to show us the reward of humility. And the way that we're going to see this most clearly is in Christ's exaltation in verses 9 through 11. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I met a couple of you that this is your first time. I want to just kind of give you a brief little review of where we've been in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we opened up chapter 2 looking at the motivation for our unity right there in verse 1. We said that there is encouragement and endowment and empathy. And because all those things are true, because we receive all of this from the Lord, Paul then goes to verse 2 and tells us not just what is true, but what to do. This is the mandate. We are to be unified as the church. And then we looked at the marks of unity. And there Paul told us that we are to have the same mind, the same heart, the same soul, and the same goal as Christians. And that is what marks our unity. And then we studied the means of unity in verses 3 and 4. And we said there are three things that we really need to pursue and mature in. That is Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And then the three things that we need to mortify. And after we looked at verses 3 and 4, we 
tackled verses 5 through 8 last week. And we looked at Jesus as the supreme model of humility. Paul gave us that front row seat, as it were, to look at Christ's condescension. And he took us on this kind of visual journey, this mental journey of this, this downward descent as Christ goes from glory and takes on human flesh and then goes down even further, being subjugated to the law that he himself established, suffering earthly affection, affliction and rejection. And then ultimately, all of that was to go to the cross. Jesus was born to die. He goes to the cross. He bears our sins. The greatest one ever to live. The name above every name. Everything that we just sang came to this earth in the incarnation, humbled himself. And again, he did that out of obedience to the Father and out of love for us. And when we think about the incarnation as we studied it last week, God had a purpose in that. You see, it doesn't stop with the condescension. It doesn't stop with the humiliation. It doesn't stop at the crucifixion, and it doesn't stop at the grave. All of that, all of that was pointing to the glorious resurrection. That's why we're here on a Sunday morning worshiping. And so this is where Paul wants to take us today. He goes from the gloom of Friday, quickly turns to the glory of Sunday. And now we realize that Christ's condescension his humiliation, his crucifixion. It's not the last page in the book, but we sang it that there is a glorious, exalted, risen Savior, and we long for him to return to make all wrongs right. So that's what we're focused on this morning. His resurrection, which means that he lives forever, and now his exaltation, which means that he now reigns forever. So let's look at Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start there in verse 5, and then I'm going to read down verse 11. Here is God's word once again for us. Paul writes, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May our sweet Lord, impress these eternal and inerrant truths on our hearts. Father, please help us now as we turn to your word. We need your Spirit's direction and guidance as we seek to know you better and worship you more faithfully. Satisfy our hearts with the beauty of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The notes uh, are in your bulletin, but if you don't have that there, the outline looks like this. We're going to look at four major headings hopefully easy for you to remember. We're going to start with the unmatched position there in verse 9, that Jesus is given the name above every name. He is exalted with the highest status. We'll move from the unmatched position to the unavoidable submission there in verse 10, where it says, every knee, every knee will bow. 
And then we'll look at the universal confession. It's not just every knee that bows, but every tongue will confess. And then finally, we'll conclude our time looking at the ultimate purpose, which is to the glory of God. Our main idea is simply this. God the Father vindicated Christ's humble obedience by exalting him. And now you and I have the privilege of praising, proclaiming, and patterning our lives after Jesus's humility. One more time. God the Father vindicated Christ's humble obedience by exalting him. And now we have the privilege of praising, proclaiming, and patterning our lives after Jesus's humility. What Paul wants us to understand, church, is that both Christ's humiliation and now his exaltation really do serve as our example. When we serve one another, when we sacrifice for each other, and even when we suffer for the spiritual good of others, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. And when we do that, ultimately God is glorified. So let's look there at point number one, the unmatched position there in verse 9. Look again at verse 9. It says, Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. In Bible study, whenever you come across that word, therefore, you have to ask what? What is the therefore? Therefore. This hint of clause is, is a great, just a signal for us to look back. And what we're looking back at is verse 8. Because Jesus willingly humbled himself by becoming a man. Because Jesus became a slave, a bondservant, he, he lowered himself even more. And the text says that he lowered himself even to the point of death. And it goes even further. If death wasn't bad enough, he lowers himself to the point of dying a death on the cross. Therefore, you see, even though he never deserved to taste the bitterness of God's wrath, therefore, because Jesus willingly chose the path of degradation and disgrace, Paul says, therefore, God highly exalted him. Verse 9 here marks this dramatic turning point because we've been going low, 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 and now it's time to make our way up. And Paul does that here with this therefore in verse 9. So no longer the downward plunge. The Father is going to give us the upward pull and show us that Jesus deserves to be exalted. And look at the text. It doesn't just say he's exalted. It says he's highly exalted. The word there is a compound word. And the main verb means to, to, to lift up or, or to raise up. But interestingly, Paul, he attaches this, pre this prefix to it to kind of intensify the thought of lifting up. So it's not just a lifting up, but it's a, a super lifting up, a super raising that God does. And what Paul is trying to communicate is he wants us to go beyond just the mere understanding of God lifted him up. No, no, no. God has lifted Jesus up to the place of authority and supremacy that no one has ever known. Jesus has been super raised. The exaltation of Christ puts him in a category all by himself. So now that he is towering and transcending over all things. And I just draw attention to that word, first of all, because Paul just kind of made it up. This is the only time that it's shown in the New Testament. 
But Paul is in the habit of doing this. He just makes up words because the, the, well, it's not the English language, but it's the Greek language, the Hebrew language. It can't quite express the beauty and majesty of what's taking place here. But he says the Father is the one who elevates the Son to the highest of heights. The entire universe is now a footstool for Jesus Christ. No longer sunk low, but catapulted to the greatest of heights. And in a very similar way, as we looked at the condescension, there is a progression, not of going lower, 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 but going higher, higher, higher. And so what do we see here? The exaltation, as we take these steep steps upward, the Father exalted Jesus when he first raised him from the dead. And that was the message of the New Testament in the book of Acts, as Peter and the others are preaching. Say, you crucified him, but God raised him up. He is no longer dead. He is living. So not only was Christ resurrected, but after he resurrected, we know this, as we read the book of Acts, he spent 40 days showing himself with many convincing proofs to the disciples and others that he was physically raised from the dead. And after those 40 days, he takes his stand on the Mount of Olives. And with his disciples and others watching, he ascends into the clouds. It's his resurrection, his ascension, but his exaltation also includes his enthronement and his coronation. The Bible tells us that Jesus once again took his rightful place at the right hand of God. He sat next to his Father in that place of honor and glory and majesty, and that seat belongs to him and him alone. Now, the interesting thing is, the question is asked, well, is, is Jesus receiving more glory and more honor than he had before? I mean, wasn't Jesus all glorious before? How is it that he's ascribed here what seems like more glory? Obviously, Jesus is fully glorious, all glorious. But the difference is, is he returns back to his glory. He returns back to his glory with having completed the work as the God-man. Redemption. It is finished. Salvation secured. And so Jesus returns back to this high and exalted state. And this is not difference because some, some Jews and others will tell you that the New Testament message is different than the Old Testament message. Two different gods, two different stories, two different focuses. And that's just not true because the entire Old Testament was pointing to the Messiah being high and lifted up the Messiah being exalted. The prophet Isaiah describes the suffering servant as one who would be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Daniel pictured one like the son of man who would be given authority and glory and sovereign power and all peoples and all nations of men of every language would come and worship him. Daniel chapter seven. And it's that theme that the apostles take up they don't just put the Old Testament away. No, they have been illumined in their minds to understand that Jesus was in the Old Testament the whole time. And they begin to preach the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 31, Peter stands up at the day of Pentecost and he says this, He, that is Jesus, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. 
This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been highly exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This has always been the plan of God. You didn't creatively come up with it when Adam and Eve fell. This was the plan from all of eternity that God himself would come and save his people. The plan of exaltation was from the very beginning up from the tomb in triumph is the resurrection. Up through the clouds is the ascension. And up to the throne in majestic session. This was all planned from the very beginning. And that is emphasized or re-emphasized in that phrase there. He, that is the Father, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I just want to show you how Paul hits on each of these aspects of Christ's exaltation there in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And look at verse 19. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this in 19, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When did that happen? When he raised him from the dead. He didn't just raise him. What else did he do? And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, where is this seat? Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. He continues, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. It boggles my mind that people say, yeah, Jesus is just like any other religious leader. He's a smart and wise and great guy. That is not what the New Testament preaches, and that is not what the intent of the Old Testament was either. Now, when Paul says that the Father bestowed upon Jesus the name that is above all names, Interestingly, he doesn't tell us right away what that name is. He actually leaves us kind of on a cliffhanger and doesn't reveal it till later in the passage. But we know that the name is important because three times, just in these two verses, Paul emphasizes the name. Look there with me again. He bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And you say, well, what is significant about a name? Now, obviously, in biblical times, we're thinking about uh, names a little bit differently. Uh, names weren't just for identification purposes. Uh, today, people pick names because uh, they're unique. Um, sometimes they have meaning. Uh, I remember when we were talking about our names at our dinner table with Jess's family, and uh, Jess's dad had mentioned that uh, in 1980, I think is when you were born, it was a very unique name, Jessica. I said, I don't know about that. So I looked up, and you can kind of see, like, Jessica was like top five that year. 
My name, Dominic, my, my mother named me uh, because she just liked the way it sounded and loved the name. We named our daughter Michaela because uh, Jess's mom's name is Michael, and it kind of sounds like Michael. And my mom loved the name Michaela, so we kind of came up with a compromise, and we said her name's going to be Michaela. But more than that, Michael means who is like the Lord. And as Jess and I prayed and thought through what Michaela's life would be like, we wanted to be her to be like the Lord. The same thing with Titus, Justice, and Judah James. There was some intentionality that went into the naming of our children. And that is what the Old Testament did. When the Old Testament, uh, when, when people in the Old Testament were named, it wasn't just a label, but the name describes the purpose that God had for their life. It communicates something about their very character or their very essence. Dwight D. Pentecost says, name is used here in its Old Testament sense where the name represents the total person. It bespeaks of the office and the rank and the dignity attached to the person because of his position. And so when Paul says that he is given the name above every name, it's talking about who this Jesus actually is. It refers not just to his person, but his position, the position of honor and dignity. And because he is exalted to the highest position, he must have the highest name, the name that is above every name. And you think about this, God is the one that had to do this. He had to bestow this name upon Christ. And you say, why did God have to do that? Because man certainly didn't. Here the king of glory comes to the earth and think about the way people treated him. Think about all of the disgrace the insults, the ridicule, how he was abused, made fun of. I mean, think about the names that he was given. He's just a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They called him a blasphemer, a bastard, Beelzebub, you're of the devil. That's what man did. So the father has to set the record straight. It is not as if Jesus didn't always possess this name, And this dignity, but he did temporarily lay aside his right to that honor and respect and dignity. And with the resurrection and now the exaltation, God puts his stamp of approval and says, no, 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 no. He has the name which is above every name, the name that needs to be recognized and worshiped and adored. You see, the humiliation of Christ, it's over. Never again. We have an exalted Christ, a glorious Christ. And that's why Peter proclaims to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, he says, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to all of Israel and the forgiveness of sins. There is no greater name. So the Father's exaltation of Christ not only provided the unmatched position, he's exalted and bestowed the greatest name, but it also established unavoidable submission. Look there at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And here you say, well, is is this the name that Paul is getting at? Is this the unmatched name that everyone will submit to, the name of Jesus? 
But look down at the text again. Read very carefully. The text doesn't say at the name Jesus. It says at the name of Jesus. You see, Joseph and Mary were instructed to call their son Yeshua. Yahweh saves. It's a glorious name. It's a beautiful name. We love that name. We sing that name. And yet we know that that's not his only name. You say, Dom, was he given other names? Yeah. In the Bible, all over the Old and New Testament, we have so many names and titles for Christ. He's called the Adam, the Anointed, the Apostle, the Amen, the Alpha, the Ancient of Days, and the Author of Life. He's the Beloved, the Branch, the Bread, the Bridegroom, the Bright and Morning Star. He's the Captain, the Consolation, the Chief Cornerstone, the Counselor, the Chosen of God, and the Christ. He is the Deliverer the day spring, the day star, the door, the desire of nations. He is the everlasting father. He's Emmanuel. He's the finisher of the faith. He's our friend. He's the first fruits. He's the faithful witness, the fountain of life. He is God. He's the guy. He's the governor. He's the great high priest. He's the help, the hope, the husband, the horn of salvation, the head of the church, the heir of all things. He's hell's dread, heaven's wonder. He is the holy one. He is the great I am. He is the inheritance. He is the image of God, the immortal, the invisible. He is the just and the judge. He's the king of kings. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of glory. He's the king everlasting. He is the life, the light, the love, the lily, the lion. He is the lamb. He's the lawgiver, the living stone. He's the messenger, the Messiah, the mediator. He's the master. He is the mighty God. He is the new Adam. He's the offspring of David. He's the offering, the omega, the only begotten of God. He's the priest. He's the Passover, the prophet, the propitiation, the prince of life, the prince of peace. He is the great physician. He's the righteous one, the rabbi, the ransom, the rest, the root of Jesse, the root of David, the refiner, the refuge, the resurrection, the rose of Sharon, the ruler, the redeemer, the rock of ages. He's the stone, the shepherd, the son of God, the son of man, the shield, the servant, the seed of the woman, the suffering servant, the sinless sacrifice, He is the Savior. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not only that, but he's the teacher, the truth, the tabernacle, the treasure, the tree of life. He's the witness, the word, the way, the wisdom of God. He is the wonderful. And I didn't even scratch the surface. There's so many more that I cut out of there. But when you think about the names of Jesus, he is the name above all names. He is the fairest name, and he is altogether lovely. But of all the names of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there is one name that is highest of all. But Paul doesn't get to it yet. This is what he says. Everyone will bow to this name. Why did God exalt Christ? Why did he give him this name above all names? The answer is right there in verse 10. So that every knee will bow Now, we don't have to get into the Hebrew because when you come across the word every, you know what that means? Every. Everyone, all of them, none are excluded. Bowing is the physical act of acknowledgement. In a word, bowing is just submission. It is submission. The self-lowering in the presence of one who is far greater. To bow the knee is to assume a posture of subjugation. Acknowledgement that there's an authority over you. I remember when we first started teaching, there were these two 
They're not little anymore, but they were little sixth graders who just adored my wife as the teacher. And they had quite an imagination. They thought they were little Jedis. And they treated my wife like she was the master Jedi. So they would walk into her classroom and they would both bow very regally. And they would say, I'm here to do your bidding, master. And that was very cute because they were acting like little Padawans. But that's the idea there. You are bowing low and acknowledging a superior. When we look at athletes or musicians, people in the world have this habit of bowing low and saying what? We are not worthy. There is no one more deserving of that kind of posture and that kind of attitude and that kind of allegiance than Jesus Christ. And one day, Paul says, all creation, not just the human race, but every living part of creation will pay homage and bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the extent of this submission in Paul's words. He says, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does he mean in heaven? That means all the cherubim, the seraphim, the myriad of mighty and majestic angels, Michael and Gabriel, and all the other heavenly beings are going to bow down. The redeemed saints already in heaven will join the host of angels and will gladly and willfully and joyously bow to Jesus. But it's not just those in heaven. Paul says on the earth. That's all the redeemed believers. That's you and me. That's all the local churches that are meeting right now on the peninsula who are genuinely saved. We all together in unison will bow down to the King of Kings. The entire universal church, not just that are living now, but from generation to generation, all of us will bow in humble submission to our King. And it's not just the believer. Take note of that. But it's non-believers too. The mightiest and most recognized people ever to live will all bow to King Jesus. Kings and queens, nobles and princes, all royalty, all rulers, all politicians, all the powerful, all the popular, every single athlete, musician, and artist will bow the knee to King Jesus. All the wealthy, all the wicked, all the wandering, the haves and the have-nots, it's everybody. Everyone who has ever set foot on this planet will bow to Jesus. Paul goes one step further. He says it's not just heaven and earth, but it's those under the earth, which means Satan and all of his hellish friends will bow the knee to King Jesus. Every demonic force and everyone already in hell will bow the knee to King Jesus. What is Paul saying? No one stands in front of King Jesus. Humans, angels, redeemed, unredeemed, rescued, rebels, all will bow the knee. You and I, we know people who are stiff-necked, stubborn, obstinate. They will drop to the floor. I've had people tell me, I will never confess Jesus as Lord. I will never swear my allegiance to Jesus. Yes, you will. That means every false religion. That means every Muslim, every Jehovah's Witness, every Mormon, 
every Buddhist, every Hindu, all the cults, all the agnostics, all the so-called atheists, all who hate God and speak evil against him will both acknowledge and pay homage to King Jesus. And you say, well, hey, that's kind of hate speech. No, it's not. It's a hateful thing to not tell you that you will one day have to bow to King Jesus. That's Paul's point. There is no sphere that is exempt. The realm of God, the angels in heaven, the realm of humanity, everyone on earth, all those in the underworld, the demons and the devil under the earth will bow his position, church. It's unmatched. Submission is unavoidable. And right along with that, the confession of Christ's lordship is universal. Not only will every knee bow, but Paul says, yes, every tongue will confess. Every tongue will lift up the name of Christ. Look at point number three in verse 11. He says, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, every tongue. This is now the third time in these verses that he uses the word every. Every name, every knee, every tongue. And that word confess, it just simply intensifies, it conveys this idea of it's going to be open and public declaration. Everyone who has ever lived will make this confession. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every race, every color, every shape, every belief, every creed, every man, woman, and child, all will bow and confess. And now this is what we've been waiting for. What is the name that is above every name? What name will everyone bow to? What name will everyone confess? There's no better choice in all the universe than what he says next. It's right there in the text. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name above every name. Paul makes this unmistakably clear because even in the Greek language, he fronts it. He puts kurios before to say, no, this is the focal point. This is the name. It is the Lord, the master, the sovereign, the one who has the right to rule with all authority. It is the title of majesty, sovereignty, and honor. It speaks of a person who has control, not over just some things, but all things that belongs to Jesus. And Paul says, every tongue among all rational thinking creatures will acknowledge that Christ is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, what's interesting is that Paul actually goes to the Old Testament to make this point. And so I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 45. Because the power of Philippians 2 actually comes right out of the Old Testament. And what Paul does here is he draws a straight line from Isaiah 45 to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. It is a restatement of what the prophet Isaiah proclaimed many years ago. When you read Isaiah 45, what you soon realize is that 
The one that's speaking is the only true God. It is Yahweh himself. And what Paul does, what he has the audacity to do, is to say that same Yahweh, the I am that I am in Isaiah, that is what we are attributing to Jesus, that he is Lord, not sir, not just master, not just teacher, but that is I am. Isaiah 45, again, God here declaring his uniqueness as he's contrasting himself with all the false idols that people are worshiping. He says this in verse 22. Read along with me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me, Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Who's saying this? Yahweh. Now what's going on here as we look in this passage, God is saying, I alone am God. Therefore, I am issuing this this summons to the entire ends of the earth to turn to me, to be rescued, to be delivered, to be saved. You say, well, what, what, are the, what are the grounds? Well, because I alone am God and righteous and salvation are only found in me. Now, look there at verse 23. Then the Lord solemnly swears by his own life that eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge with completion that he is the absolute sovereign. And so do you see the significance of Paul using this text. If there's only one God, if Yahweh is the only God that we must worship, Paul is saying, that's who Jesus is. He is Lord. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 10, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, Hebrews 2.9. And then also in Hebrews, we learn that he is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his nature, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And it says, when he had made purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All over the New Testament is all there. And when you get to the last book, the apostle John makes this statement in chapter 5, verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, same language, and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. And after you do just a simple cross-reference of those texts, what you begin to realize is that this is what Paul is doing He is saying the reason why 
This is the name above every name is because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of the universe. And everyone will confess. Now, don't misunderstand that. What Paul is not saying is that we're all going to come around to acknowledging Jesus as Lord, and then we all get to go to heaven. And that's what some people say. They teach a, a universalism that, that at some point we're all just going to acknowledge that, but we can live any old way we want, and God and his grace and mercy, he's going to let us in to heaven. That could not be farther from the truth. Paul has already reminded us in chapter 1 and verse 28 that there's a sign of destruction for those who don't know God. And that Isaiah passage that we just looked at in verse 24, it says, all who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. We know that even the demons, they know Christ is Lord. They acknowledge that. They bow down. They say you're the son of God. Jesus also said, there's many that will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And Jesus will respond, what? Depart from me, for I never knew you. You see, it's not just a matter of uttering it with the mouth, but it's embracing it with the heart. What God is always after is not just a mental assent and acknowledgement, but it is a humble, submissive enjoyment of his sovereign rulership over our lives. I find it so fascinating that so many have rejected Christ, have shamed Christ. You just go down the list. You think of Pontius Pilate, King Herod, Hitler, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, Stephen Hawking. I mean, on and on it goes. All of them, all of them will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And let me just remind you, if you do not, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. There is no salvation. There are not a million ways. There are not even two ways to heaven. There is only one. And Peter proclaimed that. And the apostle Paul proclaimed that. And he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That, uh, that confession takes even more significance when you think about the time of the first century and how people didn't acknowledge anyone as Lord except Caesar because he was deified. And the early Christians lost their lives as they proclaimed Jesus as Lord because that was treason and rebellion. There's a story of Polycarp who came before Caesar and before the masses and he was told if you would just Call Caesar Lord, we will let you live. Just, just, just shun all the atheists, which they called Christians because we didn't believe in multiple gods. We believed just in one. And so he said, okay, I can do that. I shun all the atheists. And when they said, that's not good enough, they said, no, you say Caesar is Lord. And he said, how could I? There's only one Lord and one master, and it's Jesus Christ. And Polycarp, like so many other, lost their lives because they believed that Jesus is the only Lord. That is why Martin, Martin Luther exclaimed this. He said, a name like this is outstanding, great, and immeasurably glorious. 
Whoever heard of ascribing to a man on earth a name as great and glorious as the one ascribed to this Lord and ruler? The Roman emperor and the king and the pope and even the Turkish emperor like the king of spades in comparison with the Lord and ruler. They might have great titles. They might be called high and mighty, invincible, most gracious and the like. But this king is preached in all the lands as true God and true man, a powerful Lord and ruler to whom everything must be subjected and sub, sub, subjugated and subjected, heaven and earth and all that is therein, angels, men, devils, death and life and sin and righteousness. And this leads us to our final point, because the question now is, well, what is the ultimate purpose of all this? Well, the purpose is clear in the text. The purpose of Christ's exaltation is that so every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But even behind that, there is a greater, more ultimate purpose. And that there is at the end of verse 11. The greatest ultimate purpose for the humiliation, the condescension, the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation, all of it is for the glory of God. You see, when we give homage to Christ, God is ultimately glorified. When we bow the knee to Jesus, God is glorified. That is what brings the Father glory is when we fulfill our mission statement. We exist to glorify God. How do we do that? By magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus and the Father are not at odds when we honor the Son, glorify the Son, treasure the Son, love the Son, serve the Son, proclaim the Son, the Father is glorified. We say sola dea gloria. And we do everything for God's glory, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We do that because everything that God does is for the glory of God. And what did God do for His own glory? He sent His Son. And His Son willingly humbly took your place on the cross, died for you, but now he is exalted. And it brings God so much glory as he delights in the Son and we do as well. Now listen, just a few points of application as we come to a close. What do we do with this text? Well, hopefully your hearts are led to worship, to enjoy God even more than when you came. But just a few practical things for us as we walk away. First, Christ's exaltation should definitely motivate us toward humility. Remember, this is, this is Paul's primary application. He's talking about unity, and he's talking about humility. And here he says, look, this is the mindset that you were to have. Go low. Go low. And you say, well, that's not really a problem for me because I really have no desire to be exalted. I have no desire to be the center of attention. But even last night in my own home, I sinned against my daughter because I just didn't want to make popcorn and didn't want to be bothered. It's too busy playing chess. And that hurt my daughter. And I realized in that moment, as I'm studying about lowering myself and what it means to be humble and what it means to sacrifice, my heart just wants to do what my heart wants to do to be selfish with my time and with my energy. My, my default is not to serve. My default is not to love. 
And studying this passage is just a great smack in the face to say, did Jesus not serve you? Was Jesus not willing to lay down his life for you? Maybe it's not making popcorn. Maybe it's not jumping up and helping in that particular way. But every time we say no, because we just, we just don't want to, that is not acting like Christ-minded humility. Selfish ambition, vainglory, self-interest, again, that is the default. But when we look at Christ, he does the exact opposite. I've been saying this over and over again. What would our homes look like? What would our relationships look like with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents, with our friends, with our neighbors, if we adopted the mind of Christ? So Christ's exaltation should motivate us toward humility, not our preferences, not our opinions. Jesus said three times in his ministry, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who, exalts himself, or he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this passage is an illustration of what Jesus taught over and over again. Both Peter and James said, if you humble yourself, if you humble your, yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in the proper time. It is worth it. Go low. The second application for us is Christ's exaltation. It should motivate us toward evangelism. The fact that every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus, either willingly in this life, or it's forced upon them at the judgment, it should compel us to tell other people that Jesus is coming back. I mentioned that at the ascension, Christ goes up into heaven. And remember, the angels come to them and say, why are you staring up in heaven? The way he went up is the same way he's what? Coming back. When you think about those feet that went up into heaven, those feet are coming right back to the Mount of Olives. We've been there. We've seen it. Those same little feet that came, those little baby feet, Mary probably playing with the toes, those feet that grew up and walked all over Judea and Galilee, those same feet that walked toward the basin, the only feet that walked toward the basin to wash others' feet, and those same feet that were pierced for our transgressions and iniquities, those feet are coming back. And there's only a little bit of time left for us to tell people to fall before the feet of Jesus. If you don't do it willingly, you'll be forced to do it. And the last thing you say is, Jesus Christ is Lord, and then hell. This should motivate us toward evangelism. Luke says this in Luke 24, that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem and Seaside and Monterey, and PG, and Salinas. We have a job to do, church. I'm reminded of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. If you have a pen or a highlighter, I want you to mark this because this should be a reminder to you of what's going to happen. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, just like he ascended, this will happen. Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is a terrifying verse, and it makes me shudder to know that people that I love continue to reject Christ. We can't change their hearts. We can't, we can't gift them with salvation. That is not for us to do, but it is our responsibility. It is our privilege to make this Lord Jesus known, to call them to repentance. Everybody has a date with deity, and you and I have an opportunity to get them ready for that. And lastly, Christ's exaltation should motivate us and help us to hate sin and to pursue pleasure. You see, the reason why you and I are tempted to be proud and self-serving and to want recognition and to look on Facebook and Instagram and see how many likes we got and we want to be praised and we want to be patted on the back, the reason that we want that is because we just we want to be exalted. We do. We want honor. We want glory. We want to be significant in some way, at least to some people. We want that. And Paul reminds us, look, be content with going low, with serving, with not being first, with not jockeying for position, but lose yourself in serving others. Lose yourself in sacrificing for others. And God's promise is that if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And if it's not here in this lifetime, then you are guaranteed that in a life to come, you will be exalted. Not that you'll be lifted up above Jesus, but you will join him. You share in his inheritance. He wants to gift that to you and give that to you. In fact, he already has. And now it's a matter of just living that out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're so grateful for your word, the power of your word. And Lord, the, the motivation is, is clear. There will be an exaltation. There will be a final reward. And we must put off sin and reject this desire to be the center of attention and to shun every thought of being preeminent and supreme. That is not our place. We do not own or possess the seed of Christ. He alone owns that place. And so I pray that you would help us, God, to live by faith. Help us, God, to consider Christ the greater riches and to look forward to the reward, even as Christ set the example for us, that he, being the author of life, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, Father, every time that we want notoriety, we want vindication, we want respect, we want honor, help us to remember our, our Lord Jesus Christ, being eternal, being divine, being worshipped by angels, having all that honor and glory. He temporarily set it aside to serve us, knowing that one day all of it would be restored and that you would be glorified. 
Father, may we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Cause us to do that. Even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.